0: Our text for this morning is Psalm 15. Beloved congregation in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Psalm begins with a straightforward question Who may abide in your tabernacle? and gives to that question an equally straightforward answer Only those who are perfectly righteous it gives to us a detailed description of that doctrine which the Apostle teaches us in Hebrews chapter 12 when he said, Without holiness, no man will see the Lord. This is, is then, a universal truth that the psalm expresses. It is a truth that applies to all men, at all times and in all places. And it is such a universal truth because the Lord himself is the one whose very character demands that those who come near to him be righteous. He is a holy Lord and he will not and in fact cannot tolerate in his presence any unholiness or any unrighteousness. We consider the psalm then under the theme Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? We consider first the question that's verse 1 Secondly, the answer that's verses 2 through 4b or or rather 5b 2-5b, and finally, the conclusion, verse 5c. First of all, then, the question. David speaks here in this first part of the psalm, this first verse of the psalm, of the tabernacle and the holy hill. The tabernacle was, of course, the house which God set up for himself among his people, So that he could fulfill to them, in part anyway, the promise that he had made to Abraham when he said to him, I will be your God and the God of your children. God fulfilled that promise in part when he built for himself in the nation of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, a house where he could take up residence among his people and show himself, in that very practical way, to be their God. The holy hill of which David speaks is the hill on which the temple was built. That hill had been purchased by David from Ornan the Jebusite when, at the time of David's numbering of the people, and had been designated by him as the site upon which the temple would be built. Now, when David says, who may dwell in your tabernacle, I think we may say that there are three things, at least, that are included in that concept of dwelling in the tabernacle of the Lord. Three things. The first is, coming into the presence of the Lord through prayer. That's taught us in Hebrews chapter 4, the very last verse, verse of the chapter, where we are exhorted to come boldly to the throne of grace, which was in the most holy place. We are exhorted to come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So prayer is one thing that's included in coming into the tabernacle of the Lord. A second thing that's included in that concept of coming into that tabernacle of the Lord is gathering with the Lord's people to worship Him. The church is the temple or tabernacle of God. It is His dwelling place among His people. And when His people gather together to worship Him, they are coming into his presence, into his tabernacle, and into his holy hill. But the third thing that's included in that idea of coming into the tabernacle of the Lord is entering into the most holy place itself. And by that, Hebrews 10 makes clear, we are entering into heaven, the throne room of God the final resting place of himself and his people. All these things are included in that concept then of coming into the temple or tabernacle of the Lord. Notice that David addresses this question of verse 1 to the Lord, Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle?" And he addresses that question to the Lord, of course, because the Lord controls access to his house. The Lord determines who may come in and who may not come in. The Lord opens the gates of that house to some and shuts the gates of that house to others. It is his house, and he allows into it only those whom he wants there. But the thing I want to call your attention to, especially this morning, is that this question, which David asks here in verse 1, is a rather startling question. And it's a startling question for two reasons. The first reason that it's such a startling question is that at the time that David wrote this psalm, the tabernacle did not exist, and there was really no holy hill. The tabernacle had been forsaken probably at the time that the Philistines captured the ark from Israel and took it into the land of Philistia. It was not restored. Worship of God never returned to Shiloh, the place where the tabernacle was set up. And it seems that sometime between that capture of the ark during the time of Samuel and The end of the reign of Saul, the tabernacle was lost or destroyed. We don't know what happened to it because the scriptures never say. But at the time of David's reign, that tabernacle was no longer, at least, considered a place of worship for God's people. We never read about David or Solomon going to that place to worship God. When David recovered the ark, he did not bring it back to the tabernacle or to Shiloh, but brought it to the city of Jerusalem where he had set up a tent for it. So when David says, Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle, he's talking about something that doesn't even exist anymore. That is not for the people of God a place of worship anymore. And when he speaks of the holy hill, he's speaking, as we noted already, of that hill which he had purchased for the construction of the temple, but the temple didn't exist there either. God, at the time that David wrote this psalm, had no dwelling place among his people. And yet David asked, Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle as if he still does? Well, the answer to that problem is relatively simple. We could say, for example, that David is speaking here in that way because he's anticipating the construction of the temple which he did plan for during his reign and his psalms many of his psalms were written with a view to that worship of God which would take place at the temple we could also say of course that David speaks here ideally rather than practically but still it's rather a startling way for him to speak But the second reason that this is such a startling question is that David uses those words, abide and dwell. The word abide could also be translated sojourn. And it's a word which suggests temporary residence. It's the word that's used of Abraham when he went down to Egypt to escape the famine in the land of Canaan. He sojourned in the land of Egypt. That is, he took up residence there. Not permanent residence, but nevertheless residence for a time in that place. The word dwell, however, does suggest permanent residence. So the words are very close in meaning. And when David uses those words, he's using words that from the perspective of the people of God, may well have seemed very, very strange. Because as far as they were concerned, there was no one in the Old Testament times who could abide in God's tabernacle or dwell in his holy hill except the Lord himself. The people... Israel were not allowed into that house. They could come as far as the courtyard and no further. The priests who went into the house on behalf of God's people went into that house only to perform there the services required of them. So they went into that house to offer incense at the altar of incense to trim and light the lamps. To replace the bread on the table of showbread and so on but they certainly never resided there there was no provision for them to reside in the house of God and even the high priest who had the most significant access to the house of God who was allowed into the most holy place once a year to offer to sprinkle blood on the mercy seat even he could not reside in the house of God there was no man no man at all who lived in the house of God, and yet David asked, Lord, who may abide, or who may sojourn in your tabernacle? Who may dwell permanently in your holy hill? Now, why was it that there was no one allowed to reside in God's tabernacle in the Old Testament, or for that matter, in the temple? The reason, people of God, is that God is holy. And the light of his holiness is so bright and so terrible and so fearful to the sons of men that when the light of that holiness shines, they are driven from his presence. They cannot abide that light. He is the light unto which no man can approach. You find that, for example, in Exodus 40. After the people had set up the tabernacle of God, the cloud of glory descended on that tabernacle, verses 34 and following. Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, and Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because the cloud rested above it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The same thing happened when the Lord's cloud of glory filled the most holy place after Solomon had, filled the, the, had completed the construction of the temple. That's in 1 Kings 8, verses 10 and 11. And it came to pass when the priests came out of the holy place that the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not continue ministering because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Then Solomon spoke, the Lord said he would dwell in the dark cloud. I have surely built you an exalted house and a place for you to dwell in forever. The Lord is holy. And when men see that holiness, they quail before it. It is not possible for men to approach that awful light of the holiness of God. Furthermore, all those places in the Old Testament in which God revealed himself, in which God made his name known, became holy by his presence there. When God revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush, he said to Moses, take your shoes off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. When God came down in fire and smoke and thunder on Mount Sinai, God sent Moses to the people of Israel with the message, Don't let any man or beast touch the mountain. It was a holy mountain. And the same applied to the temple and the tabernacle. It was a holy place, as holy as Mount Sinai. No man could enter there. The holy God was revealed there it was impossible, ultimately, impossible for any man to come into the presence of the Holy One of Israel. Those who did come into that presence had to come according to the prescribed manner. And as sanctified by the rituals of the law, the priests had to walk. They had to be dressed in the holy garments. They had to offer, as Hebrews 7 tells us, Sacrifices for their sins, their own sins, before they could enter the tabernacle of the Lord. And when any man tried to come into that temple in other than the prescribed manner, it was at risk of his own life. Aaron's sons who offered strange fire were consumed. Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, who tried to presume on the office of priesthood, were consumed with all those who supported them. Uzziah, the king of Judah, who also tried to offer incense, became a leper. It was at risk of their own lives that they did not approach God in the prescribed manner because he was a holy God. And those who drew near to him had to be holy, had to be sanctified, as he himself is holy. So when David asks this question in verse 1, Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell on your holy hill? It is, in a sense, a rhetorical question. The answer to the question is obvious. No one, no one may abide in your tabernacle. No one may dwell in your holy hill. But that's not the approach that David takes to answering the question. Instead, David approaches that answer to the question in an indirect manner by laying out for us in verses 2 to 5 the qualifications of those who must enter, who can enter rather. Right? And those qualifications come down fundamentally to just one qualification, and that is that he who will enter the house of God must be perfectly righteous. That brings us to our second point, the answer to the question, which we find in verses 2 through 5b. Now that answer that David gives to the question may be itself divided into three parts. In verse 2, David describes that righteousness that is necessary for entry into the house of God in a general way. He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. In verse 3 and in the first two lines of verse 4, David describes this man who may enter the house of God in terms... Of his relationships with others. He who does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile man is despised, but he honors those who fear the Lord. And in the last line of verse 4, in the first two lines of verse 5, David says that the man who enters the house of God must be a man who does not put himself first. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. He does not put out his money at usury, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. Now, it's worth noticing as we look through these different ways that David has to describe the qualifications of those who will enter the house of God, that we notice that these qualifications, these virtues that he's talking about here, are ordinary, homely, everyday sorts of virtues. He does not describe the great acts of love and charity that men sometimes perform, nor does he uh, describe the great acts of confession of faith and steadfastness in the face of persecution that sometimes have led saints in the past to martyrdom. Those aren't the kinds of things he talks about. He talks instead about things like not backbiting, about not doing evil to your neighbor, about not taking up a reproach against your friend, about swearing to your own hurt and not lending your money at interest. Virtues which we all are called upon to practice frequently. Now let's look a little more closely at those three groups of things that we have here in these three or four verses. First of all, then, in verse 2, he describes this righteousness in a general way. He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. The man who will enter into the house of God must be righteous in this way. And really what David's saying there is no more and no less than this. He must be one who adheres to the commandments. One who will not swerve from those commandments. Who in all of his life, in every aspect of his life, follows the prescriptions of God's holy law. It is, after all, in that law that God has said to his people, This is the holiness I require of you. Here in this law, I reveal to you my holiness, and you must be holy as I am holy. Therefore, obey these commandments. The word uprightly that is used in the beginning of verse 2 is a word that's also used to describe the sacrifices of animals that the people of Israel were to bring to the tabernacle and temple. They were to be sacrifices that were without blemish. They could not be halt or maimed or blind or deformed or marred in any way. They had to be without blemish. Well David says here that the one who enters into the house of God is one who must be like those sacrifices. In fact, of course, those Sacrifices represented those who were to come to the temple. They were to be, those who came into the temple, had to be without blemish. In the second place, their righteousness has to be an active righteousness. They must be people who walk and work righteousness. Their righteousness is not passive, It is not just simply a keeping oneself from the things that the law forbids, but it is a doing of those things that the law requires. It is an active pursuit of the love of God and the love of the neighbor. And finally, it must be a righteousness that arises from and is governed by a heart that speaks truth. This means, then, that the man who enters God's house must be a man who is fully informed with regard to the truth. Who has the knowledge of the truth inwardly. And whose knowledge of the truth then governs his speech and, in fact, all of his outward behavior. So that his speech is consistent with what is in his heart, and his heart is consistent with what is Shown on the outside. He is not one who works righteousness outwardly, but whose heart is full of dead men's bones and corruption and filth. But he is a man who has the truth in his heart. Nor is he a man who has the truth in his heart, but you could not tell anything about him from his outward life. You could not know it from his life. The truth flows out of his mouth. Irresistibly and governs his behavior so that in all of life he is actively righteous. This is the first thing that David says about the man who will enter God's house. He must be righteous in this way. Now, in verse 3, and the first two lines of verse 4, as we said, he talks about what this man must be with respect to others. The first line, in the first line he says, this man is one who must not backbite with his tongue. That word backbite is a very interesting word because it's a word that in almost every other instance of its use in the scriptures has to do with spies. It's the word that's applied, for example, to the spies that Moses sent into the land of Canaan to find out what the people and the land were like and to bring back a report to the nation of Israel. It's the same word that was used of the men whom Joshua sent into the city of Jericho to find out how the people of Jericho were reacting to the presence of Israel and what the city of Jericho was like. They went to spy out the city. Well, when the psalmist uses that word here, he suggests that kind of person who always has his eyes and ears open to find some kind of juicy story about his neighbor. He's a man who is furtive in the sense that He may be expressing interest in his neighbor, but whose only real interest in his neighbor is that he hopes to find something about him, something not positive, that he can broadcast to others. He spies on his neighbor in that sense. He's a backbiter with his tongue. The two words that are used in lines 2 and 3 of verse 3 are very close together, neighbor and friend. The first of those words is a word that has quite a broad range of meaning. It can mean anything from a casual acquaintance to a friend. That is, someone whom one bumps into on the street or has a momentary contact with and then does not see again all the way to someone who is very intimate. And the word friend has sort of the same range of meaning, except that it moves one step closer, because that word friend at the end of verse 3 also includes in scriptural usage, relatives, blood relatives. So when David uses those two words here in verse 3, he's talking, I think, about the full range of acquaintances, friends, and relatives that we may have here on earth, from casual contacts all the way to those who are closest and dearest to us. And what he says about those people is that the man who will enter God's house must not do evil to his neighbor. That is, he will not do anything to injure his neighbor. He will not do anything harmful to his well-being, to his reputation, to his possessions or any such thing. And he will not take up a reproach against such people. A reproach is a cause of shame to the person against whom the reproach is leveled. A cause of shame. It may be Justified shame or unjustified shame, it doesn't really matter here, but it's a cause of shame to him. And when David talks about taking up a reproach, he's not talking about inventing or finding a reproach, but about picking up a reproach that's already in circulation and passing that reproach on to others. He will not take up the reproach, he will not pass along that reproach to others. It is not his desire, in other words, to bring shame on any of his neighbors, however far or close they may be. Now, in the first two lines of verse 4, David looks at this whole matter of relationships from a little different perspective. And he's really answering for us the question here, whom do we value? Who is it that we despise? And who is it that we honor? Will we honor, for example, those who are powerful? Those who have wealth? Those who have fame? The great warriors and the great athletes? of our time? Will we honor the basketball player, the baseball player, the football player, the news commentator, the president of the United States, this or that person throughout the world simply because they are in a position of power or fame or celebrity or or whatever it may be? And then on the other side of that coin, will we dishonor or despise those who do not have that fame, who do not have that honor, who do not have that power, who cannot perhaps contribute anything to our well-being and to our success? David says most emphatically here that those who will enter God's house must be those who honor not the great, but who honor those who fear the Lord. These may be people who are very lowly. They may, may be ugly. They may be disgusting in their personal habits. They may be dressed shabbily. They may be people who can do nothing for us. They may be very poor. But if they fear the Lord, that is what is important. David says it is the man who honors those who fear the Lord who will enter the house of God. They also will despise, then, the vile person, the person who is rejected of God, no matter how great and honorable and glorious and powerful they may be. He does not honor the basketball player because he plays so well or because he loves the fame that the basketball player has, but he despises him because he's a Sabbath-breaker. despises those who are rejected of the Lord even if they appear honorable great and wonderful people. Now in the last part of verse 4 and verse 5, David talks about the man who will enter the house of God as one who does not seek his own advantage. For example, he may swear an oath and he may find in course of time that the keeping of that oath will be costly. It may cost him money. It may cost him something in his reputation. It may cost him something in his pride. It may cost him even his life, ultimately. But he will not turn from his oath. He regards his promises, his vows, and his oaths as obligations before God, as sacred, therefore, and sacred duties, holy duties that must be performed. His yes is yes, his no is no. He keeps his word even to his own hurt. He does not look, then, when it becomes obvious that his oath is going to cause injury, he does not look for an excuse to escape from it. He does not disregard it and say, well, I didn't know that this was going to be the consequence of that oath. He follows the example of Jephthah, who made an oath and kept it to his own herds. In the second place, he may come across people who need from him a loan, a poor man, for example, who needs financial help. In those circumstances, he's not a man who says to himself, now what can I get out of this for myself? How high an interest rate can I charge him to get as much profit out of it as possible? What can I do in these circumstances when I have this poor man in my power to take advantage of it? and to do good for myself." That's not his approach. His approach is rather that he loves the poor man and desires to do him good. He looks at the words of God in Exodus chapter 22. We can turn there for a moment. Exodus 22, verses 25 to 27. And he says that this is the way he likes to conduct himself. Exodus 22 verses 25 to 27, If you lend money to any of my people who are poor among you, you shall not be like a money lender to him. You shall not charge him interest. If you ever take your neighbor's garment as a pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering. It is his garment for his skin. What will he sleep in? And it will be that when he cries to me, I will hear, for I am gracious. And finally, he is one who will not take a bribe against the innocent. That is, when he finds himself in a position of power with respect to a neighbor, an arbiter, for example, not necessarily a formal arbiter, a judge, but an arbiter between two people, he does not let the flattery, the bribes, or the threats of the guilty turn him from the path of justice. He seeks always in these situations to do justice to the innocent. And again, it may be to his own hurt to do so, because the guilty man may carry out threats, may withhold bribes, may do injury to him in some way, But he does not let justice fall to the side in order to protect himself. In other words, his righteousness is not self-seeking. His righteousness seeks the well-being of his neighbors. This again is the man whom God will allow to come into his house. That's a rather comprehensive description, then, of the righteous man that David has here in his words. He must be righteous in his walk, in his works, in his heart, in his tongue, and in his eyes. He must be righteous in all of his relationships of life, from relationships with casual contacts to those who are most intimate with him. He must be righteous without regard to his own well-being, and his own advantage. He must be righteous inwardly and outwardly in every facet of his life. So the question which we're bound to ask in answer to that description of the righteous man is this, is David talking here about an abstraction? Remember what Psalm 14 says? There is none who is righteous. No, not one. And yet, people of God, in the Old Testament, even in the Old Testament, the people of God did live, symbolically anyway, in the house of God. The priests, went into that house as their representatives. But more than that, the furnishings of the holy place of that house represented the presence of the people of God with him. The altar of incense was the place where God and his people met and where his people offered up to him their prayers. The table of showbread and the lampstands Stand was, were also symbols of the presence of the people of God in his house. The people resided, dwelled in the house of God. How? How was it possible if there, he was such a holy God that even the priests Sanctified by all the proper rituals of the law, could not abide his presence in that house, how could the people dwell there? And the answer to that question is only by blood. That's why the altar of burnt offering stood in front of the doors of the tabernacle. There had to be offerings of blood. Those offerings of blood had to be perfect offerings, unblemished offerings. And by those offerings of blood, the sins of the people were covered over. So that when they came into the presence of the Holy God, they came as those who were righteous, whose guilt had been covered by the blood and whose unholiness, whose defilement, whose wickedness, whose transgressions of the law had been washed away by the washing of the blood that had been shed. They came by blood, and they did, they did, people of God, resign in the tabernacle of God. And in the New Testament, we are told in Hebrews chapter 10 that it's a more great, a greater and more wonderful thing for us because Christ has torn back the veil that hid the most holy place, even from those in the holy place, and opened the way for us to enter into the holiest of all, into the holy of holies itself, that is, into the very room among His people where God lived. Christ has opened the way into the most holy place for us so that we may dwell in his house. He is the perfect lamb, spotless, undefiled, harmless, innocent, perfect in himself, and he is the great high priest who is able to make sacrifice. Not for his own sins, because there was no need for him to do that. But who was able to make the sacrifice of his own perfect self for the sins of his people. He's the man whom David is describing here in Psalm 15. He is that one who is perfectly righteous. He is the one who walks uprightly, who works righteousness, and who speaks the truth in his heart. He is the one who does not backbite with his tongue, nor do evil to his neighbor, nor take up a reproach against his friend. He is the one in whose eyes a vile person is despised, who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt, and indeed he did swear to his own hurt, and will not change. He who does not put out his money to usury, and who will not take a bribe against the innocent. He, being the perfect high priest and the perfect lamb, makes the perfect sacrifice of his perfect self for the sins of his unholy people and brings them with him into the house of God. Their sins covered and their unholiness washed away. That brings us then to the third point. He who does these things shall never be moved. The conclusion. Now, of course, David could, by way of conclusion, simply have restated verse 1 as a statement of fact rather than as a question. He who does these things will abide in your house. That's the implication of this conclusion and the implication, in fact, of the whole psalm. He who does these things will abide in your house. But David carries it beyond that, one step further. He will not be moved. What does that mean? He will not be moved, or he will not be shaken. Well, it means, first, people of God, that he will not be shaken from his righteousness. As he lives righteously in the world, the gales and storms of wickedness beat upon him. But his house is built on a firm foundation, and he cannot be shaken. He cannot be shaken from that righteousness. As he, in fact, learns and grows in that righteousness to which he is called, God confirms and strengthens him in it so that he becomes ever more immovable and unshakable in spite of all the efforts of the evil one. But it means also, of course, that he will not be moved from his place in God's house. He has a place there through the blood of of the perfect Lamb of God and the great high priest. He has a place. Nothing can move him from it. He cannot be shaken. He cannot be shaken by an enemy, and he cannot either, people of God, and this most importantly, he cannot either be shaken by the judgment of God himself, For the judgment of God himself will be, this man is worthy to dwell in my house. But we should see also, and this by way of conclusion, that by saying it this way, he who does these things shall never be moved. David stirs us up and incites us to that righteousness which we must have to come into God's house. As he says a little bit later in Psalm 27 One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. We know, as David knew, that the way to dwell in the house of of the Lord our God all the days of our lives is the way of righteousness and holiness obtained for us and infused into us by the great power of he who alone is a righteous man. Having heard the word of God let us say Amen. Amen. We sing, or we make confession of our faith now with the church of all ages, using the words of the Nicene Creed, as found on page 13.